you have him. Let's Wonderful, recap, isn't it? David, let's recap for Nuno's benefit because he's four minutes early. What did we just find out? What was the breaking news? And didn't we call it? David, floor is yours. Oh right! I think I'm all all agog now. Yes, the the, uh, the what we've what we've just been given is the uh, confirmation, Nuno, uh, that the uh, the Danish uh, um, uh, the military did take the pictures of the Russian ships over uh, the, uh, the the gas pipeline. Wonderful news! Uh, we're waiting for some more. Um, but yeah, we the great use of. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we say this because we were on the other side. Uh, because obviously, if we were uh, working uh, for the security service, we would be going, damn that uh, that Freedom of Information Act. But for us, this is wonderful. Freedom of Information, how do you extract it from people? The Russians Hi. did it. Hi there, Nuno. Hi, guys. Uh, pleasure to be uh, back. Hi, everyone. Um, so, yes, apparently, uh, Danish have them uh, red-handed uh, with pictures and everything. Uh, over the the Nord Stream One pipeline, uh, actually Chuck Chuck uh, called it and Doug called it when they said they used the mini submarine. Exactly, one hundred percent. And they can't they can't sing their way out of it. They can't do a shaggy. It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, we were uh, in the place uh, a couple of days early, uh, a couple of days before it blew up. So it's basically um, an interesting, uh, an interesting piece of confirmation. Also, um, one interesting bit of this is the Danish have been sitting on this for quite a while, and I think in terms of intelligence, is it's uh, it's very interesting that they have sat on this uh, for quite some time now. Uh, these pictures aren't exactly um, new. They were taken at that date. So the Danish had a pretty good understanding from the get-go where that was headed. That's my point. And just imagine, do you remember all these wonderful discussions after the Seymour Hirsch article, uh, all the projection uh, in German media, the anti-Ukrainian narratives, um, everybody, but carefully, I have to say this, I have to give this, this uh, time to them, Der Spiegel this time did not chime in. They just said, media reports that. Obviously, they kept their powder dry. But <clears throat> everybody else went full in. I mean, really, feet forward into the doo-doo. Everybody, Süddeutsche, Tagesspiegel, uh, Contraste, the uh, magazine on television, state television, and the likes. And they were brandishing this. Tagesspiegel, Berliner Zeitung, you name it. Everybody. Andromeda, you know, the sailing boat, bad Ukrainians. Yoo-hoo! <laughs> oh, no, and Jesus. apparently, and apparently an, an interesting piece of this is, uh, as I was saying, the fact that the Danish intelligence was sitting on this information for a while now, right? So uh, it's it's very um, very apt and very interesting that they let everything run, and I'm sure they've supplied the, the necessary intelligence to partner agencies, even uh, not only the Nordic ones but uh, everyone in uh, in NATO. So um, it it was it's an interesting it's an interesting 
I would like to understand because I really don't. Why did the Danish kept it uh, like this? Why did they kept this information uh, so tight for so long uh, until now? That's a very good question, isn't it? Maybe, maybe they didn't trust their allies as much. No, I don't think that's exactly the point. There must be some other point to that. I'm not, I'm not sold on that. So I think the Danish may have had operational reasons or sources and methods reasons, or they and they may have had uh, different uh, reasons to sit on this information for so long. I don't think it, it's a matter of trust because what's what trust is there to be broken when you say, okay, the, uh, we've, we have the pictures, basically, of the Russians uh, sitting uh, with the minister Marine on top of the cables a few days earlier. So this ain't something that will um, uh, create any mistrust with allies or create any issues because they've released this back then. But they didn't. So... But they could have corrected. What I'm saying is, they, uh, do not hear me out. They could have corrected the perception growing in the German public and in the German parliament that the German BKA, Bundeskriminalamt, was legitimately searching after people. Because don't forget, they, the Danes allowed the Germans to do a police action despite the fact that they had these images. There must be at least 40, 50 people in a task force of the BND and the Polizei in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, who are really, really, really spoiling for a fight with some Danes in a bar somewhere in Samanau. They must be really angry. Yes, but uh, from the Danish perspective, the Danish intelligence perspective, I, I'm, very, I'm very curious to know, why did they sit on this? Exactly. That's, that's, a, that's a good argument, sure. I'll take it, but um, there's got to be a reason for intelligence to sit on this for so long. It's been, come on, it's been October, November, December, three, seven months. So. It is so intriguing. Why, I agree with you. Why, why sit on it? Why sit on this so long? Why let it run to all sorts of narratives and now come out and say, well, we have the pictures, right? He caught them red-handed. So, in that sense, there's got to be a reason for that. And I would say that if there's a reason for that, the only one I could think is the counteroffensive. Why does it that, that tie in? Because it's a way to flip the narratives on the Russians on the moment so near, so close to the counteroffensive. That's an interesting take. So you mean create momentum, media momentum in the run-up to the counter-offensive? Whilst yes, still create information operations prior to in the West prior to the counter-offensive. Why not? Right? All right. Why not? Interesting that's, point. That's, that's, that's like a point. Thing. That's a point, right? Because the Nord Stream 1 was one of the things that so many, in so many places, in so many uh, latitudes, 
pointed out it was the Americans, it was the pro-Ukrainians, it was this, it was that, it was the Ukrainian government, etc., etc., etc. And it was used to fuel a whole plethora of anti-Ukrainian, anti-Western narratives and, and to try and to an extent to divide the transatlantic relationship. So my point being that we are sitting on the eve of the counteroffensive. On the eve, <laughs> people don't understand. I'm saying it's tomorrow, right? On the eve, in a lot of sense, so on the eve thing. And the truth is, uh, shaping information battle space and saying, no, it was the Russians who have the picture. It's Okay, I'll, just... I'll take that. I'll take that. That's it's an interesting point, Uno. It's the first thing I, I that came to mind, actually. Really, it's no. I haven't gave it. I, I told you actually because, yeah, shocker, everyone. Me and Axel talk about this show offline sometimes to to prepare it. Um, that's shocking. And you um, said, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I told Axel. He told me, "Let's start with Nord Stream, dude. What the hell are you talking about?" Because uh, <laughs> that's the truth, <laughs> and uh, I know it's shocking, uh, but the only thing that comes to mind, uh, given that uh, it put me on the spot here, the only thing that comes to mind is exactly this. Uh, it may be the time to start dismantling some narratives, and this is one narrative to dismantle. Good. Just, let's, take, my, let's take briefly Doman. Sorry. Go ahead, Doman. Please go ahead, Doman. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I just want to remind to everyone. You. I just want to. Hi, Luna. I just want to say what, one little thing. Let's just remind ourselves what the Danish uh, defense minister, whomever it was, said today. All they said, they only gave one very specific snippet of information. The snippet was on the 22nd of September, uh, a Danish patrol board. Uh, a, a patrol boat, the Nymph, took 26 photos of the Russian vessel SS-750 in the area east of Bornholm. Full stop. That is all they said. That is that is the only thing they said. They didn't want to say anything. But because of a combination of Danish legislation on freedom of information and a very specific um, freedom of information request that asked... Uh, how many pictures, something along the lines of how many pictures were taken from the boat called the Nymph of the Russian vessel SS-750 on the 22nd of December 2022, because that was such a specific freedom of information request, eventually they had no option but to comply with it and say, yes, we took 26 pictures. That's all they said, nothing else. Everything else is constructed on the basis of AIS data and, and, and satellite data and other data that could, be, that could be put together, right? So it's just that one sentence that the Danish Defense Command released, and then this is now going to be cycled through for every permutation of Danish vessel and Russian vessel and the date in that range that they can work through, and they'll wait. I don't know, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is for a response every time. And eventually we'll be able to construct exactly how many pictures of which vessel there were. Um, the other thing that I'd say is, 
uh, when you say you know that damaging the transatlantic partnership and so on, I would argue very quickly that anyone who fell for oh it was the Americans, they're people who if the Swedes and the Danes came out with well it was the Russians here we have the pictures this is what they did they would say oh no this is all constructed this is all constructed by the by the CIA anyway. So anybody who fell for, oh, it was the Americans, I have one secret source I'm not going to tell about to anyone, and that's why I'm publishing on my Substack, even though I have a Pulitzer Prize, and everybody would publish me immediately if I gave any editor the remote semblance of of uh, trustworthiness that I actually have an actual source. Um, you know, those people would have would have gone with, oh, it was the Americans the whole time anyway, and probably all thought it was the Americans the whole time anyway, because that's who they are. Um, and with that, uh, I'll drop myself the listener and enjoy the show. Thank you, Duna. Thanks, Dominic. That's a good point. I mean, uh, uh, first of all, one absolute certainty I had from the get-go, and this will shock some, it, it's not the Americans. Why? Because if anything, this would be an operation that would require uh, approval from the White House. And honestly, uh, the White House has been careful uh, throughout this, and they wouldn't risk an operation like this. And the Americans uh, uh, actually were as caught as uh, by surprise as the rest of us. But I would say that the Americans probably... Um, had this intelligence uh, with them shared by the Danish early on. However, uh, truth of the matter is, this will now be uh, all over uh, the the information space. It will, as Domin was saying, it will get deconstructed and rewired and reseen and uh, whatnot. And uh, it's it will be interesting to find out why. But my, my biggest point here is the why. Uh, okay, the Danes have the pictures. Fine. Now, the thing is, why did they held this off so long? And the only thing that comes to my mind is the information operations side of it. That's my, my view on this. Well, this leads us directly back to the battlefield, doesn't it? Because essentially, if all these are uh, information operations which are preceding what is supposed to be the counteroffensive, maybe we should just take stock of what we know well, of the battlefield first... and then move to that? Yes, let's go to that. Um, first of all, uh, I would say that uh, let's start with Bakhmut. Bakhmut has been a recurring team. Apparently, Russians have been uh, quite successful in Bakhmut. But Ukraine, and I've shared the nest here a, a thread by Phillips O'Brien, who points out a very good um, and solid uh, argument, which is, Ukraine is doing what Ukraine said Ukraine would do, which is they fixed and degraded the Russian military. They are now made them fight their way through the city. About 10% of the city remains in, from what we can assess, 
in Ukrainian hands, but they are indeed retreating from the city. Ukraine is abandoning Bakhmut, but it's not abandoning. It's doing a retrograde operation out of Bakhmut, which is a subtle but important difference because it's organized. We also had this week uh, an interview by General Sirsky where he laid out the case for the defense of Bakhmut. And we still have some people uh, uh, second-guessing the uh, commander of Ukrainian ground forces, which is, okay, I don't, it may be me, I may be wrong, but I don't tend to uh, second-guess the commanding general of Ukrainian armed forces. He may have a better... I'm betting he has a very much more sophisticated picture of the battlefield than me, right? So in that sense, yes, Ukraine is retrograding probably from Bakhmut and the, the Russians will control Bakhmut. Is that worth anything for them right now? I don't think so. And I've said this here multiple times. It has no military value. And they did probably what they intended to do. They don't want to sink any more troops into Bakhmut because the time uh, for other operations is at hand. And no, against all odds, no, the Russian army is not going to suddenly break out of Bakhmut and threaten Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. They still have a bit of fighting to do. They've, um, and Philip O'Brien, Professor O'Brien, says that perfectly. It's an operation that served its purpose. And people will say, yes, but you were a guy saying that from the get-go it was a a good choice to defend Bakhmut. I stand by it. It was a good choice to defend Bakhmut. That's my personal take on it, having seen the operations, having listened, having uh, looked at uh, what General Sersky and others have said. But President Zelensky has said, and yes, it was a good operation to see, uh, to defend Bakhmut, even if Ukraine now re- retrogrades uh, to other defensive positions out of Bakhmut. And there's no harm coming to it, right? Uh, the, the, the theater will not change, an inch, will not change significantly or even relevantly from this retrograde operation, but they decided the time they decided to serve this purpose because that's what military operations do. They serve a certain purpose. Perhaps now it's time to rock, reconstitute some of the the, TDA, the territorial defense forces and some of the units that fought in Bakhmut. And regarding Bakhmut, uh, I think that's uh, the take. And that we'll need to see how this moves ahead in the coming days. But yes, Ukraine will probably lose control of all of Bakhmut within the next uh, few days. But they probably uh, decided not to sink any reserves into it anymore because it's not justifiable. And that's the interesting thing. It has served its purpose. Precisely. Uh, uh, it served this purpose. I've, I've seen people say, and I've said here, uh, uh, don't expect the Ukrainians, even if a counteroffensive is launched before they lose Bakhmut, don't expect the Ukraine to launch a counteroffensive in Bakhmut. There's no, uh, 
value to it. There's some value, for instance, in threatening those northern flanks of Bakhmut. Yes. But right now, apparently, it has served its purpose. And if it has served its purpose, why uh, sacrifice more forces for it? Uh, we stand, we stand uh, on the eve of, um, of a Ukrainian counteroffensive. It's uh, something that people need to hear. I know there's a lot of jitters. There's a lot of uh, this thing never happens and it will never happen because it's not happening. Well, it's not going to be First World War. You're not going to have a massive artillery salvo and then people will storm the lines. It's nothing like that. This is a, cons- a, a series of operations. And this will tie into the other subject I would like to discuss on the, on this matter, which is the Kherson, um, the the crossing of the Dnieper. Yes, but please. We'll get there. Yes, we'll get there. But first of all, regarding Bakhmut, let's see if the audience has any questions. No let's questions. see. Rich, fancy? Mm-hmm. No, I think everybody is content. They've heard it. And by the way, <laughs> this is no, the key is you have been arguing this just like we've been doing this and we developed this point over the past few weeks, I think very consistently. So I think it's very clear to people who have been um, tuning into the program that where this is actually leading up to. So I think it makes a lot of sense. So let's move forward. There's a lot of front yes. to cover. Yes, yes, Kersan. Kerson. Well, I've seen, uh, we've all seen the reports that, um, uh, yes, the Russians, uh, the, sorry, the Russians, <laughs> the Ukrainians have crossed the river in uh, smallish, smallish numbers. But um, we've seen those reports for sure. We've all seen it. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's not a counteroffensive, for sure, because that's not the maneuver element they crossed. But it's part of the shaping operations, and it's probably reconnaissance uh, of the, the the left bank of the Dnieper, and and the fact that Ukraine crossed them, according to one Russian military blogger, like. Cuban drug lords on their fast boats, which I thought was interesting. Uh, an interesting description for river ride operations, but there you go. And the the issue is they crossed it. They crossed it with a maneuver element, a small, uh, sorry, a small reconnaissance element, but apparently the small reconnaissance element is left there. So, in that, that what does that tell Ukrainians demand and tells us. First of all, these are not, these are not special operations units. Special operations units will be operating on uh, the left bank of the Dnieper. Uh, they have been operating for weeks. They have identified the necessary targets and they probably identified a region of the shore where they could try and recon this. What does this recon tells us? Well, it tells us something important. It tells us that uh, supposed Russian lines and supposed Russian reserves there are not adequate and are not sufficient to push out a small force like this. 
So if it's not sufficient to push out a small force like this, it's also a maneuver that allows uh, Russians, if they want to counter it, for instance, with artillery, they'll unmask their battery. Right? That's a point I don't think anybody uh, I've seen made. Because if you want to counter this, you'll need to unmask your batteries, right, into your artillery uh, position. That will provide confirm confirmation of positioning. Even some that may not be recon uh, reconnaissance, uh, that reconnaissance may have not yet uh, identified. And that will make a nice target, right? So the point being that this is not, this is shaping operations, okay? This is not exactly operations that will lead to um that will lead to a crossing there, but it's a way for Ukrainians to see uh, really what's the response, what's on the other side, how will they, how will they um, um, react in in to this? Will they have the reserves to throw in and push them back? Won't uh, will not will they be able to do so? Will they use counter battery? Will they use artillery fire to do it? Will they call in airstrike, helicopters, whatever? Is there any reserve that is meant to 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 hit that? And that's that's my point. It's reconnaissance. And I believe a few weeks ago I, I've said that one of the things we will see is reconnaissance by recon elements all across the lines, all across the line, right? Because it's it's one of the aspects. Yes, there's a lot of um, signals intelligence. There's a lot of images imaging uh, that is supplied to Ukraine. There's a lot of uh, electronic uh, intelligence. Uh, there's a lot of there's special operations on the ground for sure. Uh, that Russians know this. This is no big secret. I mean, Russians must be aware that there are. Uh, soft elements there. There are irregular elements operating uh, everywhere. But in the end, you'll need to test what the enemy does when you stage a, an open action. What happened? When you cross those lines, what happened? And that's important to assess if you can, for instance, stage a larger element because make no mistake I'm I have a firm belief a firm firm belief that Ukrainians will stage a crossing of the Dnieper and fall that's a firm belief I have I may be incorrect I may be wrong it's difficult but they will stage an operation like that because it makes sense. It will not be the first major operation we'll see, but it's going to come. Because if you cross that, that front of the Dnipro is not as defended as the Russians would like this to think so. And this actually proves that. This proves that whatever forces Russia has there, they were unable to dislodge to dislodge a small reconnaissance element openly. So 
And one thing this also proves that is that the targeting cycle that the Russians use, and we've discussed this for um, aviation, and we are now seeing that in artillery, there's the targeting cycle is ex, um, is centralized and is long. So it's difficult to respond for individual units to call out fires because they haven't used fires to dislodge, the, to dislodge these guys. Sorry. And this is, I think, the, the key aspect of all this, which is we have now seen a reconnaissance action into this um, into the left bank of the Dnipro openly broad daylight this is a test of Russian lines and Russian defenses and in that sense it makes perfect sense it's sorry for the <laughs> repeating myself but it makes perfect sense from a military standpoint that this will happen in other places of the front too Yes, I was going to add to that, Nuno, as well, because uh, the the thing is, is about these things for anyone who's thinking uh, about it. Um, the uh, the Ukrainians need to ask questions of the Russians, right? Don't don't make them think all the action is all in one place. You have to keep pushing them and asking questions of their military command, right? If you don't do it, then what they'll do is they'll uh, they may make assumptions and and they just go, "Here we are. What do we do?" If you ask questions then they're constantly uh, looking at worrying about is the offensive going to be down here because we know they don't have enough troops and therefore you're always making them wonder how much pressure they're going to be getting in any one place. That's an excellent point, actually. Uh, uh, The decision-making process and the set of decisions. Russian, uh, Russians still have in Rostov-on-Don, some combat power as reserve. But that's a bit far away. We've seen this week that uh, their uh, staging areas uh, and holding areas in Crimea have been mostly emptied out, right? There's everything probably uh, from what satellite imagery tells us, everything that was uh, possible to, to send for the north into the land corridor to Crimea and to other places at the front is there from Crimea. So there's probably, okay, some forces in reserve in recuperating and reconstituting in Crimea, but, but the bulk of the forces are committed. What you say is absolutely true. This is a set of bad decisions. This is creating problems and questions for the enemy. Because let's say Ukraine stages an operation in Svatov. And uh, this northern Lugansk, Svatov, and Starobilsk. If they stage an operation there with significant numbers, let's say they throw two brigades at it, three brigades at it, what Russian command will think is, okay, we'll need to defend this axis of the front. But that if at the same time you throw forces across Vuladar 
towards the south, then you have a, a different set of problems. But what what exactly am I going to defend? But from the reserves I have, what am I going to use to 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 commit to Svatov and to commit to Vuladar, for instance, right in the south? Okay, even if I have the forces to do that, if someone opens throws another two or three brigades at let's say from Orikiv south towards Tokmak, then what? You, you'll need to start prioritizing. And the, some of this will be keep them guessing. I mean, what, what I mean by that is keeping Russian commanders having to make choices where to commit forces and reserves and where the main thrust of the operation is. Russians ain't stupid. Russians know they'll lose the war in the south. They know this. They ain't dumb. They know that uh, cutting the land corridor and eventually hitting Donetsk city is where they lose the war. Russian commanders can look at the map as any of us and will say, well, this is our, this is what keeps me up at night. What happens if these guys cross into the south, right? Now, that said, but what happens if they first cross in the in, in the northern in northeast in northeastern Lugansk? What happens, right? Will I commit there? Well, I won't because where I can lose the war is in the south. Yeah, but if I lose Svatov and Starobolsk, I'm I'm in a world of hurt because all northern Lugansk is open for Ukrainians. This is to make a point. It's examples to make a point. And the point is exactly what David was saying. It, it's a, a compounding set of decisions. You don't expect the Russians to, Ukrainians to give the Russians a full-on major battle. We're going to invade the South and we'll fight it out in the South. That's not going to happen. That's not the nature of this. You'll need to keep... Uh, to an extent, keep them guessing, and to an extent, compounding their problems. And that's the most important, I, I believe, the most important strategy for this. Even, even, and I'll say this, and people will keep wondering, but even adopting eventually some uh, more bold strategy. What I mean by that is, what if the offensive is Donetsk City? What happens then? Has anyone considered that Losing Donetsk would be a major blow to the Russians because it's basically the the center of all operations in Ukraine. That's in Crimea. You lose it. There's a major problem there. Well, it's my first choice. It isn't my first choice, but what happened? Don't exclude uh, Ukrainian command doing uh, different things doing both things, and even, even, eventually, doing things that we are not envisioning, using some of the battle space that we are not envisioning, and eventually using a mix of reg conventional and irregular warfare. I wouldn't discount that. Actually, I'd say that they'll use all tools of warfare at their disposal to create a problem. 
and you cre can create all sorts of issues for the Russians, even, even in, the own, in, in borders of Russia that are basically not defended. Consider this. Why not? Hit right? them where they're not. Hit them where they're thin, where they are fragile, and where they are brittle, and hit exactly. them where they don't expect, uh, where they don't expect you as much, respectively, where they have very little left to give to defend. Exactly, exactly. That's that's precisely my point, Axel. Uh, if you're going to hit the front, this is a thousand kilometers of front, right? If you're going to hit the, this front, if you're going to hit it. Perhaps we may not hit. We may not see the Ukrainians hitting the south first. I won't hit the south first. Everyone is expecting a, a major operation in the south, Russians included, for the reasons that because the major operation in the south is exactly where you lose the war. Russians know this. That's where you threaten Crimea. That's where you cut off. Basically, you cut off all gains of this special military operation. If you cut off that uh, land corridor to Crimea, you're going to cut off all gains of the operation. They have lost everything they gained. It has been all for nothing because all the rest they already had. Lugansk they already had, Donetsk they already had, Crimea they already had. But... Russians know this. Russian commanders, as I say again, Russians are stupid. Russian commanders know this. If they look at the map and they'll see this is where we lose the war. But is it where you lose the war? Right? That's my point. Is it? And, and I still believe firmly that we'll see a major operation in the South. But as I've said before, It's not exactly the first major operation we'll see. And I'm firmly convinced that the first major operation we'll see will be in unexpected places to create problems for enemy uh, force disposition and enemy forces and enemy reserves. They'll spook the hell out of the Russians. And when they spook the hell out of the Russians it will force the hand of Russian command, possibly. And that's that's what you need to do. You need to keep pushing. Having the initiative is making the enemy fight when you want it to fight, right? In your conditions, where you want them to fight, in the conditions you want them to fight, in exactly where you want them to fight. And I think that's that's the main, the main reasoning here, is uh, there may be... Uh, very interesting things coming in the future and I think we'll be here to analyze them but mark my words on this I don't think the first major operations start in the south or they may start in the south but it won't be the major major operations uh, and there's a little bit I'll add to that as well I think you know is that because obviously last year um the uh, ukrainians pushed down to the south and and the russians they moved troops from the northeast didn't they to uh, support the herson uh, herson region and they saw what happened there so there will be a, an extra set of fear in them when anything happens is they go so 
they will know that last time uh, the Ukrainians moved back up to the northeast after they saw the move down at uh, the Russians move. Right. So they'll be going, what are they doing? What are they doing? And that's going to create fear at the command level, isn't it? And it's going to create doubt more than fear. It will create doubt. I would meant doubt, fear. You know, it's the same thing because they, they go hand in hand. Don't confusion. They? Yeah. Confusion. It will create confusion. And confusion is half the way, halfway there, right? If you have enemy command in a state of flux, not exactly knowing, keep, even, if, even if Russians have the necessary reserves, one thing is you have millions and millions of, of you have brigades upon brigades, millions of men, brigades, divisions in reserve. That's one thing. Okay, you have sufficient forces to fight the enemy wherever he shows up. That's fine. That's let let them come. We'll meet them where they wherever wherever they come. We'll meet them, and if they come at another place, we'll have the reserve to commit and to fight them there. Well, but that's not the situation of Russian command. The situation of Russian command is we have a problem in terms of manpower, in terms of our uh, capabilities. We have uh, an issue with vehicles. We have issues with our... We have logistics issues. And whatever reserves we have, which are, there are reserves, but they are not very significant. First, Ukraine's made them commit those reserves in Adivka and Bakhmut because the VDV was being kept in reserve and had to go reinforce Wagner. Same with some other uh, guards maneuver units. So less reserves right there because these guys have been through uh, uh, and are going through a process of rough fighting. You draw some of the reserves. Now, that leaves you with even less reserves. And their frontline units are thin. Their lines are thin. Kherson proves that. The fact that the recon element did that in broad daylight they weren't able to dislodge them. It proves that it's thin. So, and we have seen evacuations by Russian officials, by their families in Crimea and in some of the places in the south, some of the cities in the south. So they're expecting that. Sorry. However, they don't have divisions upon divisions of reserve. What they have, they'll need to commit somewhere. And the best thing they can hope for is committing that to the main effort. If you were unable to identify the main effort for long enough, you have a problem. Right? Because this thing doesn't just shift around. Right? These, they don't teleport from one place to the other. They have to move there. And the moment this is in flux, you don't know, even moving there may be a dangerous position to be in, right? So I think that's that's the main point here. Uh, you're creating significant 
divisions and significant problems, and you keep compounding the enemy's problems. So we have one operation, we meet it, we, okay, we fight it there. We have a second operation in another place, we fight it there. We have a third, the fourth, the fifth. Okay, so where are we going to fight these guys? What can we afford to lose? What can we not afford to lose? And no, there's, as we've said many times, and I think everyone by now understands, there's no big Russian army coming. coming. Even if they use the, 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 the conscripts they still have in service, you cannot, they have problems with the logistics of the current force, if they ramped it up with another 100,000 or 200,000, that's another set of problems they have, right? And it's easier to do that when you have fighting in four or five places, in the, large fighting in four, in this case, three areas of the front and not all across the board. And that's something that uh, I think people need to consider don't expect one large operation. Expect multiple operations that will seem like some will seem a very um, feeble effort. We'll be here. We'll be. We'll still be here. We'll be doing shows when people will be writing ink how the Ukrainians stage an operation somewhere, and that's all they can muster for the counteroffensive, and it's failing, right? Ignore that, because what matters is the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and compounding the sets of problems. I don't know if there's any questions from the audience. I'll shut up for two minutes to see <laughs> if there's any questions, if, if I'm making any sense here, because I see all a lot of silence. <laughs> you know why there's silence? Because A, um, it was very clearly laid out. I'm sorry to say that. I'm not trying to flatter you. I have nothing to gain from flattering you. Can I please highlight this? Every Can everybody please listen carefully? I am not going to be bribed by a case of fantastic Portuguese wine. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, no, port. Um, port. We had, we had a, a case bet. of port. We, we had a bet with planes. Don't forget yes. that. I, we had a bet with planes, Axel. Don't forget that. It's coming. Don't, <laughs> don't forget that. I don't no, forget no. My, my bets. Don't forget. There is a, I was going to say, there is a reason why for seven hours when uh, uh, people like yourself and, and uh, Thomas Tyner are talking, no one, no one says anything. They're just listening because guess what? We're really interested in what you've got to say. And there is, uh, there's not a lot more for us to say, is there, really? Because you're telling it. It's brilliant. Thanks, man. But... Uh... Uh, anyway, so regarding this, I think uh, we need to to wait. We need to wait a bit because it's going to be the the ground isn't ready yet. I think Ukrainians are being smart. They they have been they are regenerating some. One of them, and I'll say something that will upset a lot of people, but one of the positive outcomes of Bakhmut, if we can now say it, is Ukraine has uh, used territorial units, territorial defense forces in rotation through Bakhmut. These units were severely attrited. And they needed 
to be reconstituted. Some of them needed reconstitution. But the thing is, the elements that fought through Bakhmut and remain in these brigades are just made these brigades a lot more capable for combat. Battle hardened, you would call them. Battle, yes, battle hardened will be would be the the. the I know it's it's a, a a bit cynical for me to say this, but from a, a commander's standpoint, in in again, I don't discuss, and I, I avoid discussing the uh, two blocks that were taken in Bakhmut or the five blocks that were taken in Bakhmut or who holds the the highest rises and who holds X, Y, Z uh, X, Y, Z um, X, Y, Z uh, crossing. Uh, I, I avoid that because I think there's plenty of people that do that far better than me on Twitter. There's excellent OSINTERS, there's excellent map guys like Germany of the West, War Mapper, uh, a lot of people who do uh, Andrew Perpetua, guys from Deep State, who do tremendous job on this. Uh, the Institute for the Study of War, for that matter. Um, there's a num- num- numerous accounts that follow the days in the the ins and out of of the flux of war but honestly i think we when we do this we should provide always the bigger picture right in the bigger picture right we need to provide the bigger picture and the bigger picture being a, a 30000 feet view of why this uh, is happening what sense does it make? Uh, what does this tell us for, for the future? And I think that's that's the main reason in here. Okay, don't expect me ever to be discussing if anyone took uh, the high rises and whatnot, unless it's yeah. something very, very specific. So we uh, got... If we uh, ever discuss we... operations with Chuck, then we can do that maybe on one specific operation, but I don't think we're going to get there, right? There's no time for it. Uh, there's no time for it. Laughing, we have laughing, laughing, Tommy. Sorry, uh, Tommy, please go ahead. Uh, good evening, Nuno. It's always a pleasure to listen to you. I had a question uh, regarding uh, something that's uh, been announced today is that uh, Putin has signed a decree that uh, will basically uh, ban all non Russian passport holders from the occupied territories uh, beginning on the 1st of July, 2024. Do you think that this is an effort to create civilian movement in order to uh, hinder the free maneuvers of uh, the Ukrainians? That's actually a good point, Tommy. Could be. It could be also just a sheer political move. But it could be that trying to create a flux of civilians in the battle space from several directions uh, to to empty up, empty some of the regions and obviously create some confusion with humanitarian corridors, create a humanitarian situation to hinder operations. That's possible. Actually, the 
one of the parts one of the parts that uh, uh, they've uh, they've done is um, one of no one of the things they've done is uh, the 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 North Koreans um, uh, did that um, had that strategy for Seoul for uh, the capital for uh, an eventual war with um, with South Korea, and that's um, something that's um, possible. I don't. I won't say it's the first um, option, but it's it's possible. Uh, I don't know exactly what President Putin uh, uh, tried to achieve with that uh, with that uh, decree, but we'll see. But that's that's actually one of the best interpretations Tommy I've seen of it trying to create a humanitarian situation to hinder military operation. That's actually a very, very disappointing for me. Thank you. Uh, may I have a quick follow-up? Please go ahead, Tommy. Please, please. Uh, so, uh, something that was uh, discussed in an interview with an artillery colonel from Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, or last week, um, was that there is this canal that runs uh, in between Chasifiar and Bakhmut all the way up to Sovyansk. And uh, he was exp uh, one of the things he explained was that uh, a lot of the tactical value of Bakhmut was not only in treating the Russians, but in denying them access to a geographical feature that they could use to set up a, to, a defensive line. Uh, a hardened defensive position, yes. Yes, yeah. yes, I, I saw. I saw that. It's a good point, and it's. I think I believe General uh, General Sirsky also addressed that uh, that issue, and it's it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Uh, trying to deny them that for now, the, it remains uh, a situation that uh, remains denied. Uh, that that uh, geographic feature, because let's be honest, and I've said I said this way back. Uh, when we were discussing the possible uh, Russian uh, a few months ago when we started this, uh, that uh, the, one of the things that, for instance, in the North, the Russians would try, obviously, to do as an offensive operation was trying to push Ukrainian forces towards the Oskil River uh, in northern Lugansk to use the river as an obstacle. When you want to, to set up a defensive position, uh, you want to set up that where you use a, a key feature of the terrain as um, an obstacle for the enemy, right? In a river, the Dnieper being one of the, the other cases, a river is a powerful obstacle. A canal is a powerful obstacle because it needs to be crossed. And a crossing of a, a, such an obstacle in combat conditions is much, much, much more uh, difficult than uh, all the rest. But one of the things I believe is even if the Russians set up defenses along that canal, it won't matter. And why won't it matter? It won't matter because upper, the major offensives are not going to be there. And I would worry very much, for instance, in, this, in the north, in northern Lugansk, if they had managed to take Kupiansk and uh, push uh, the Ukrainian forces to the to the right bank of the Yoskal River, that would be a difficult situation, a very difficult situation. 
but I would not. Um, in the case of Bakhmut, yes, it would facilitate the defense of the city, but you can retake the city uh, from other uh, from other uh, approaches. So, or you cannot, you may not even try to retake the city because if you create sufficient problems, uh, someone will be faced with a with a conundrum of we either leave these forces here to defend against a possible counterattack, or or we may have to redraw these forces to have them fight in other areas that became much more critical, right? So it's it's a problem for Ukraine. Yes, if they want to cross that canal to uh, obviously retake Bakhmut, which I don't think they want. Uh, they've been working towards making Bakhmut a grinding, a fixing in the in uh, attrition operation, and it's probably run its course. I hope that answers the question, Tommy. Yes, thank you. All righty, um, shall we move on? We shall move on. We shall move on, and. Uh, I know that um, uh, one of the things I'd like to talk about is uh, air defense. I'm not an air defense expert by everything, by all means. Uh, and uh, one small feature I'll say is uh, Thomas Steiner is the guy for that. <laughs> Any day of the week, you know stuff about missiles, rockets, and air defense systems that borderline uh, occult borderline the occult um, <laughs> exactly. if you want to find a granular detail about a specific um, say artillery um, ordinance mm. once produced in Slovenia or sorry in Slovakia and only used by the Swiss artillery he's the guy to tell you that yes yes he knows uh, as you know I, I, he should come as no surprise that I, me and Thomas were friends uh, I usually say to Thomas that uh, he knows stuff. Of, he knows stuff about artillery and missiles and battle management systems. That honestly, for me, being a soft guy, uh, borderline the occult. It could have been written by Alistair Crowley, the man himself. That for me, it'd be exactly the same. Um, you do know that he's coming on Sunday, right? You need to make some yes, time on Sunday I know, evening. I know. <laughs> I'll make some time for for. I'll I'll try to make some time for for Thomas uh, uh, for Thomas. But the thing is, uh, to say, uh, one of the things that Thomas pointed out in very aptly on on Twitter, and, and I also believe it's a very very um, important uh, aspect is the U.S. supplied the god awful acronym of a air battle management integrated system who has a god of with actually three acronyms that I being versed in acronyms cannot spell I'll have to look it up but anyway this system basically makes Ukraine the first user of the most advanced and sophisticated uh, battle man air, air battle management system and theater defense system in the world. You it's, mean the U.S. Air Force system or the stuff which the Army has created? 
the stuff the army has created, the, the okay. operation system. That's that's an amazing, amazing system. That will make a difference. It's uh, uh, it's also a proof of concept. Let's be let's be honest. It's the U.S. proving the concept operationally, same as we've proved uh, the IVST or we've proved the Scanex uh, 35 millimeter platforms that Ryan Metal has supplied uh, to fight against drones. It's a proof of concept. And tough luck for Russian. Our proofs of concept are not T-14 Armatas. They're much sophisticated, much more sophisticated hardware that can really, really, really create uh, a difference. With the Patriots in place, with the IVST in place, with the SAMPT in place, it's quite... It becomes risky and it this... Um, uh, connect to uh, future operations because the use of uh, Russian aircraft in mass becomes much more riskier with this system in place. It's much, much more difficult than it used to be. I believe Aaron had a question. Aaron, do you still have a question? Uh, thanks, Nuno. Um so I think that system can integrate the Russian air defense as well. I've got it described as a, a big bubble with lots of little bubbles all around it that can sort of talk to the big bubble. But um, when it comes to the counteroffensive, there's been reports of um, areas that have been taken over by the Ukrainians and just huge, massive, massive piles of empty vodka bottles. So I, I can't understand that they're just sending vodka to the Russian troops like they're sending ammunition. And alcohol's a depressant and it's, um, you know, it dulls a lot of senses when it's this... bad for the cold. It's bad for the cold. For cold weather, it's awful. It will lower yeah. your body temperature. It will not warm you up. And so there's and there's been reports of um, Wagner troops and and the, fighting the each other. Russian troops fighting each other. And it yes. reminded me of the Israeli-Arab war where... I, can't remember. I, I'm got a head like a sieve, so I forget things. But I think the the Egyptians attacked, and they had a plan that it might have been Jordan and Syria, and we'll all attack at once, and we'll take out Israel. And they thought they could do it, and there were a lot of people that thought it would work. But one of them said, "We don't really like Egypt. We'll let them go first. And Egypt were like, "We're going. We're going. Come support us. Come support us." And they they just waited like. 12 hours or something. And in that time, the Israelis were able to wipe out nearly all of the Egyptian air force and tanks. And, and then Jordan or Syria said, okay, well, we'll join now. But by that time, then the Israelis would the focus on them. It was too late. It was too late. Uh, and I think, go, go. Sorry, Aaron, to interrupt. So, so I've got this picture of the Ukrainians making a breakthrough. And then, then, then the people saying we need a, a counter force to, to come and counter attack 
Wagner, come and help us. And the Wagner troops going, oh, they're just regular troops. Or counter it the other way, Wagner troops going, we need support. And the, the standard troops going, yeah, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we'll go in a little while. Or artillery having the same sort of... I, I can picture that there's not going to be a real integration between each other. And they could just say, oh, well, the, the, the radios weren't working. And then you've got this other added element of, I don't know if they're going to be Chechen, but these blocking troops. So someone tries to retreat. So you could see like some Russian, like the new Chechens they sent out, killing more Russians than they do actually Ukrainians. Do, do you think the, the, the Russians will just fight to the last man because they're fighting for their life and that, that's it? There's, that's one theory no. they've had. Or do no. you think it's just because of the alcohol and everything that they're just going to be sort of hollowed out and not fighting for a cause and you could see just sort of a real chaos because there's no yes. unity? I think I think one of the issues we've seen all across this war from the get-go, from the get-go, one of the issues we've seen all across the war has been the fact that there's no, there wasn't unity of purpose, unity of mission command, of sorry, not mission command, unity of command for the theater from the get-go. Let's remind ourselves that the Russians took them what five months, six months to get unity of command, to get a commander commanding the theater. What you had were commanders commanding their individual efforts, trying to outshine other commanders. Then you had Wagner, then you had Kadyrov's men, and uh, now you have Wagner and you have Kadyrov's men. You have the uh, Russians re reformulated this, but they've been cycling through commanders. That's another another aspect of all this. And there's been no uh, purpose of unity of command, no unity of purpose and unity of mission and unity of command for this operation. This would have gone differently if Russia had one commander with significant powers, with his staffs, commanding the, the overall operation from the get-go. Even if eventually you had to rotate that guy out or his staff out, whatever. But the, the point being that what you say about there's the, the lack of unity of command, they have reshifted that a bit, fine-tuned it. But one of the problems the Russians have is they have several efforts ongoing that are not most of the times are not connected, right? And not being connected creates competition within their own forces and creates what we saw playing out in Bakhmut. Uh, Prigozhin complaining that uh, they were not getting supplied because he had bad-mouthed Shoigu, Shoigu cutting him off. All of this, all of this Kabuki theater uh, to an extent is uh, information operations, but to another extent, it also means 
that there's no unity of command. And there's the proliferation of private military companies fighting for the Russians. Gazprom has one. Um, the Ministry of Defense has another. Wagner is there. There's also one from the, the Orthodox Church. This, not, this doesn't help in having a unity of purpose, unity of action. When you're dealing with, the, with an enemy that has national mobilization, has clear political leadership, clear military leadership, and has absolute unity of command, of purpose, of mission, of action, and has the necessary motivation. This has been one of the major factors that we could attribute to the failure of the Russian military. One of their major, major issues is leadership is an issue of not having the kind of necessary unit unity of their own operations and purposes and i think that's a very relevant point i have nothing that tells me that we will not see that again we will we'll probably see that again thanks very nice shall we move on Axel? I'd say so. I mean, we could stick around for this for hours, but then again, then we have nothing left for the engaging discussion on Sunday evening. <laughs> now, there's, oh man, Thomas knows all kinds of stuff that are obscure, occult, and uh, strange about uh, what's going on. And uh, I, I actually recommend everyone do follow Thomas Tyner because uh, Thomas is a guy who knows uh tremendous amount of stuff about and he actually did some some very significant work in uh, and I I can't praise that enough of going through the needs and greets of uh, Pentagon realignment of budgets to supply Ukraine and that's that's a very that's a very interesting uh, piece of information I recommend everyone to to share if you can if you or David can uh, find the thread please do, uh, because it's a very uh, interesting trend about the realignment of Pentagon priorities. And there's basically that tells us um, from a global perspective that the main concern is at this point, not hardware, but stocks and command and control. And also some engineering, but mostly stocks and command and control. And that's a very, that's a very important uh, uh, part of it, right? That's that's something that I'd like to to really point out. Do follow Thomas Steiner uh, because he's uh, awesome in what he does. And let's go to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, right? Absolutely. Did you see what the British MOD put out earlier today? Yes. The, the Russians have been reinforcing and have been setting up defenses atop the reactors of the, the NPP. And that's, that creates uh, obviously a problem because um, these large those forces you would have to, to attack the central, so the reactors. You can't because that can originate in some uh, major issues. 
but I think um, uh, we need to. to that's uh, that's typical of the Russians, right? They're using it as a, a kind of um, defensive position. They're using it because they know that people will refrain from attacking um, their forces that are uh, in the structure, in the stru- in the in the reactors atop the reactor structure. That's um, obviously for a small arms fire and all that. That will probably not. Um, create any major issue but if you need to use heavy weapons then we have a problem i think that's russians playing doing what they do best they're using the the nuclear power plant they as they have been for 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 quite some time as a kind of a position that is not possible to attack uh, directly because of its uh sensitivity the International Atomic Energy Agency is not very pleased about it, but uh, and they have been blocked by Russia several times. But um, anyway, it's typical uh, Russian behavior. But doesn't it also boil down? We discussed this earlier, Nunum here. Um, doesn't it boil down yet again to the same solution? Because when we spoke about this in the past with Chuck, and I think also once with you, after we had the sessions with Olga Koshana, the um, former deputy head of the Atomic Energy um, Authority in Ukraine, and Mark Nelson, uh, a nuclear engineer from uh, Cambridge, and his boss, the dean of the Cambridge uh, Program for Nuclear Energy Research and Installations. They all said that um, a plant itself is solid and it's safe. It's equally hard to destruct as any of those plants you would see, for example, in Germany, which Germany just insanely phased out. It has been uh, reinforced in recent years. As the um, MOD said today, infantry, and you could include artillery, regular artillery and likes, would not be able to penetrate it or cause such damage. At the same time, everything which uh, Russian infantry does there in terms of uh, fixed fortifications is just, as Patton would have said, um, testament to the stupidity of man. Because the Ukrainian armed forces can simply bypass Saporizhia nuclear power plant, encircle it, contain it, and then tell people, you know what, you have no supplies. You can die of starvation. <laughs> you can die of starvation, or or you you can surrender. Yes, yeah, I think you can that's, surrender. That, that... We'll give you a nice pass. We'll give you a nice exit to a nice friendly country, where you can go to, for example, Thailand, if you like. We'll fit you onto a plane. You leave Ukraine. We never see you again. Thank you. How about it? You don't need to do that. You can just take them prisoners because uh, if uh, Ukraine manages to. Uh, surround the power plant and to to fight their way around it and isolate it from being resupplied. It's an, uh, just another objective. It's it's exactly this. It's another objective. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, I, I was just making the, fun of the Thai plan. Uh, yeah, yeah. The nuclear the nuclear aspect of it. It's worrying. Yes, but the thing is, it's another objective, just another objective. You, If you isolate it, if you cut it off, 
if you cut supplies, if you cut logistics, if you cut any form of resupply, forces there will be facing, um, they either can die of starvation or they can surrender. And no, no one is going to, between surrender and causing a nuclear disaster, I don't think any Russian commander there will cause a nuclear disaster for the motherland. And it, it, it's also exquisitely hard. It's difficult to cause in, in this power plant. It's difficult to, in this particular power plant, it's difficult to cause a nuclear disaster. Unless, of course, you bomb it. And even if you bomb it, you need to bomb it with significant ordnance to cause a nuclear disaster, as uh, that's been discussed. So the sense here is it's the spectrum of nuclear, but uh, to all purposes, it's an objective, right? Any objective. And that's, that's, that's something that people need to consider. If you cut it off, they'll be forced to surrender. And I don't think any Russian commander will cause a nuclear disaster for the for the motherland. I think we have some questions from Peter and or Shaggy. I don't know who's first. I think Shaggy was first, and because the cycle got Peter ahead, right Shaggy. after it. Go mean, ahead, Shaggy. Let's go to Shaggy first. Go ahead, Shaggy. Yeah, my slightly off topic because I've just been in a Vatnik space to spread your news, uh, uh, Axel, about the Danish intel on the Nord Stream One space. Um, they weren't happy. <laughs> should we say so yeah i had to educate them <laughs> i had to educate them a little bit um yeah apparently photoshop was the best they had to come back and that was without seeing the actual post so i put the post in their nest so at least the people that are in there with them can go and have a look at it and see the intel for themselves so yeah anyway i'll shut up oh now. no <laughs> oh no shaggy i've been naughty that's uh that's uh, that's interesting because if they're discussing it uh, on their spaces, that leads some credence to the fact that I was saying that uh, in terms of information operations, it will cost them a bit. Yeah, yeah. Because Twitter is always the Twitter is always a good gauge of how it will break one way or the other in terms of information operations. So. That, they um... are they are drinking their own Kool Aid, no, no. Since many months, they believe in this. They okay. hope for this, and now, oh God! Yeah, they're the all the, the true part. the true Russian command, the true Russian army is about to come. Uh, like yeah, the Mahdi. Yeah, the true Russian army is about to come. Uh, I call it. Uh, they need. Uh, they've been. That's that's important because that's a good gauge of how this information will affect the Vatnik bat- battle space or the Russian ba- uh, the Russian information space. Sorry, um, and apparently it's good to know it has gone down. Uh, it had it has an effect, and if it has an effect, it's good. It's Probably the Danes did it well. So, yes, uh, I think that leads some credence to the theory that information operations may be the, the, the fine point in this. Peter, please go ahead. Yeah, I just wondered how much um, the disharmony between um, 
the Wagner Group and the Russian military is to do with Brigozhin wanting Putin's job, which has come out quite a bit just recently. And uh, if there's a conflict there between Putin and Brigozhin. I don't think there is a conflict between exactly Putin and Prigozhin. There's clearly a conflict to an extent between Prigozhin and the MOD and Shoigu and Garasimov. Um, one thing I would say about the Russians is there's there's a perception, and this is a per, this is an analysis. This is also a perception masked as an analysis, but it's a perception of mine that some of these stakeholders, Prigozhin, the more radical ultranationalist wing that sometimes Gherkin embodies, Kadyrov, um, the, the Petruchev clan, or the Petruchevs, um, the Siloviki, the oligarchs, the church, the major corporations, every, there's a, a number at elite level. And this, I guess, again, this is my personal perception. There's a lot of people worried about the future, what happens after the war, more than exactly what happens in the war. Because to an extent, some of these these guys realize that this cannot be won. They'll never say it. Even if Prigozhin and Gherkin sometimes just slightly, ever so slightly go there. But they've realized they are in a lost fight and that has some tension that uh, that makes them consider their futures in a future Russia and uh, one of the things we've seen Prigozhin I, I, at this point I think Prigozhin and to answer one of the questions I have in my messages I think one of the questions about what happened to Prigozhin after Bakhmut is Prigozhin will be a happy man to focus on his operations in Africa, for instance. He'll be a happy man to have his fighters out of the way of, uh, of the major operations in Ukraine and focus on reconstituting and making money so he can be an important um, an important uh, factor uh, in uh, in Russia's future, in Russia's future order internally, and I think that's one uh, one of the um, one of the the aspects that we we I, I'm actually as um, a few of you interested in the future of Mister uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. I've said it multiple times. I've said it publicly as on TV people and that I think Wagner should be designated as a foreign terrorist organization and we should apply the full bag 
of uh, uh, of um, options that entail from all the financial uh, uh, and logistics um, tracking in the, in capture to uh, all the kinetic operations on the high end of the spectrum, but we should treat Wagner and um, Mr. Prigozhin as we did Al-Qaeda and ISIS, creating a robust, designating them as a foreign terrorist organization, organization and creating a robust uh, program, robust targeting program to go after organization, its uh, offshoots, its enablers, the money, the logistics, the the movers and the shakers that make it make it possible for to launder money, to launder gold, to smuggle weapons, all of that. As we did, map it out and hit them uh, with the full bag of uh, tools of uh, state authority from uh, law enforcement agencies to full-on covert and clandestine military operations to uh, take them out and uh, create task task forces uh, focused on targeting uh, of uh, Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization. This will create a number of other problems. But I think that's the way to deal with Mr. Yevgeny Prigozhin in particular and his organization. Especially no, no, the other part. Yeah, I think this is the, the, the good, um, uh, say, lead over. Because we all know that uh, Prigozhin and his organization are not independent of the Russian state. We do know that they are part and parcel of and um, shall we say a designated operational uh, uh, component of the GRU, and they've been so yes. for a long time. Excellent. As such, yes, sure. we're sure. honest. What, what I'm trying to lead is, I, I'm completely with you. We should designate them as a terrorist organization, um, and it would be open season on them. I'm completely with you. I would love to see that happen, but that would mean that the um, say. SAD program of our friends in Langley would actually have to get active too. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, all and I would, the, the, I would the, the really like of, to see uh, that. The group action, the, the, when I mean the, the, the full bag of uh, straight state tools, I mean from law enforcement agencies to uh, international judicial and uh, law enforcement corporation to uh, special operations and paramilitary operations officers conducting kinet- kinetic strikes wherever we may find them and direct action operations wherever we may find them. Yes, and they're an arm of the GRU, but I mean, so was the Red Army faction an arm of, <laughs> of intelligence agencies back in the day. So was Abu Nidal. So in that sense, cool. We can designate, but they're an unstate actor nonetheless. So it's easier to establish a degree of equivalence with uh, other terrorist organizations, what the U.S. likes to call the violent extremist organization. 
uh, and transnational. In the case of Wagner, we actually could say it's a transnational criminal organization and a violent extremist organization because it's Russian imperialism with a, a criminal component. So we designate them as so. Actually, they already have been designated a transnational criminal organization, so we go the, the step further. We don't go there because there's a sense that this will escalate with the Russians. But at this point, who cares? I was just about to say, who cares? They, they are just causing more trouble in Africa at the moment. Yes, who cares? And uh, some of this may be not directly, maybe in direct operations, yeah. Nomads kill, uh, no tribesmen kill Wagner in Africa. That's fine by me. Nice tribesmen we got there. It's our tribesmen. Fine by me. It works. It works. Of course, uh, let's not let's not do what we did in the past. Let's not uh, uh, arm Akim to fight Wagner. So we have to fight Akim again. Let's try to get out of that but apart from that yes I think that's uh, one way to go is designating them as a foreign terrorist organization uh, both in the US and the European Union and we uh, declare open season and we declare open season to their enablers in Europe too and it has massive financial consequences, as you just said, enablers, because that would allow that uh, us to pursue anyone and everyone who aids, abets, collaborates, protects, um, and assists them, and or even engages in a, any kind of contract. Them. Remotely contact them. Any yeah. uh, because that that unleashes a series of tools. This is not just a, a, a designation that will. Um, this is not the UN. We're not designating something for uh, for the sake of it. This unleashes a certain number of authorities and tools that will be used uh, as it, as they were used for Al Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State of for ISIL uh, of Iraq and Levant. So, in that sense, it's. In my opinion, my humble opinion, it's the way to go with Buck. This if, is the if way not, to go. If not a high time as an overdue. Yes, possibly. But I think that's the 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 way to go to move forward with Wagner is that even after imagine Ukraine has tremendous success, the war is won. We will still still need to go after Wagner. Should we Peter, go to I Laughing think... Tommy and Peter? Oh, Peter is next and then Laughing Tommy again. Yes, yes. Please go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I just wanted to get what your impression is of the hour-long conversation with Z and Zelensky. Because Zelensky seemed quite upbeat about it. Um, obviously, there are things which are said and which things which are not said. But I've always been slightly hopeful with the Chinese that... Uh, and not going to be the big bad monster that most people seem to try and point them out to be. Well, I think the Chinese are the big monster, are, are the big elephants in the room. For sure, I've said here 
many times and let's transition into the politics with this. I've said here many times that we are um, in the first iteration of a major uh, major shift and major transition in uh, the international system. But honestly, um, uh, given that transition in the international system and China is trying to establish itself as an op- uh, uh, an option or a, a different uh, view of the international order, that's fine by me. That's clear in my mind. And it's the big picture conflict of the 21st century. That um, conflict between the enlarged West and an authoritarian vision of the world uh, sponsored by China with Russia and uh, and other BRICS and all that. Not all the BRICS, but uh, with other countries. That's, that's my point, Peter. Regarding the war in Ukraine, well, the Chinese are in a very good position regarding the war in Ukraine. Because, honestly, they don't stand to lose. If Russia had won, spectacular, Russia had won, the, the security order of Europe would be appended to for years to come. The U.S. would be tied down in Europe for years to come if Russia had won. Russia didn't win. It's not going to win. Chinese know this. And it suits them fine because, okay, the Russians didn't win. But we now have in Russia a state that's completely dependent on us, right? The Middle Empire. They're totally dependent on the money, on the, the business, on the commerce, on the technology. They're, Vladimir Putin is such a master strategy, strategist that he, he basically uh, tied Russia to China in a, in a way that uh, with these miscalculations about the reaction of the West in a way that Russian even Russian strategists for a long time sought to avoid. And it is now for, the, for uh, China, the Chinese for them, it's a, a winning situation. And the next move, even if Russia, let's say Russia enters a process of disaggregation, for the Chinese, it's an opportunity. It doesn't enter a, a, a period of disaggregation, but Vladimir Putin goes, but Russia remains, or Vladimir Putin doesn't go, loses the war, but remains isolated. For the Chinese, it's a win. They don't step up with little aid, just a modicum of dual-use goods, and they keep their op- their options open for what matters to them, which is the interconnected nature of their economy with the U.S. and the European Union. And this is the major difference, in my opinion, between the, the international system of the, the Cold War and the system we are seeing here. 
there's a, a massive interconnected uh, nature to uh, the stakeholders in this in this order. So in that sense, it's it's a difference. It's important. It's a key difference. But for the Chinese, honestly, I don't see the Chinese losing in this. If they overcommit to Russia, they would lose. The fact that re- Europe is rearming is not good for them. The fact that the U.S. that the fact that we may win the war, and uh, the U.S. can finally do its Asia pivot, is not a very happy thought for for the Chinese. Another important part of the, of, of the discussion for the Chinese is they have a very clear, crisp red line on nuclear use. And why is that? It's not because. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons would affect anything in China or anywhere else in Europe, even that. But it's because the moment that line is broken, that political uh, employment of those kinds of weapons, that line is, is crossed. Everyone in Asia, who's anyone, will look at this and say, so the only way I have to be secure against a nuclear power is develop my own nuclear program. And in that moment on, the Chinese are in the world of hurt. Because Japan and South Korea, for instance, are not Iran. Japan and South Korea have a a minimum breakout time for nuclear weapons, if they choose to. They have everything. They have the materials. They have every absolutely everything they need to go nuclear in a few months or a year at best. So for that, China creates a massive problem for the Chinese. So that's why they're so adamant that the Russians don't use any nuclear weapons. That's my uh, opinion on this. Laughing, please go. Yeah, uh, uh, sorry, just to finish with that. Do you see it, though, more as a... I see China as more as a trade war, because... They see themselves very much as an equal to America and Europe, and they're like a, a codependent, um, uh, bad relationship. Um, and they would collapse their economy if they did anything major uh, against the West. Um, you know, they've been trying to get uh, Europe to be more friendly towards um, uh, America. They have a technological war and they don't like using the American currency. Um, But I could not see them collapsing their economy by going into a major conflict with the the West. I think it's probably more saber-rattling. Do you think I'm wrong with that? In the medium term, you're correct. Probably, yes. In the long term, I think the Chinese see themselves as this cities as a kind of civilizational um, struggle to become the middle empire, where all roads led. So in that sense, I think in the short and medium term, yes, you're correct. But there's a few trends that will uh, shift this, one of being the, the major reshoring 
that will happen in Europe and the US as industry is brought back uh, into US and European Union uh, territories and the competition for resources across the world. So in, if you say in the next two, three, five years, yes. Don't discount also the need, uh, the, the frail egos of dictators who want uh, to be remembered in history. So in case of Taiwan, we may witness sometime uh, more of a, a, a crime of passion approach to it than a, a rational decision-making process that can happen. But also, not only don't discount that, also be mindful that eventually, uh, in the long run, 20, 10, 20 years, 30 years, we'll probably see China considers this a civilizational struggle for them. So in that sense, they want their model of civilization to be the model uh, adopted across the world. So in that, it's that there's a, there's, I, in my this is my opinion, there's a plenty of, of flux to come in the international order. Please, Laughing, go ahead. Sorry, my phone locked itself. Uh, so I wanted to ask, uh, you mentioned Iran, and I was wondering, I have been trying to track the situation and I see them moving uh, troops into Syria opposite Rojava. I'm seeing them. Uh, there's been a bunch of uh, moves made inside the Iraqi government to enable uh, Iran-centric policies. And also they seized a ship today. And I was wondering what your thought was on this Russian ally. Uh, what do you think of their objectives in the near and sh in the short and middle, uh, medium term and how things might develop here or not? Iran has, is basically conducting its behavior, its behavior, sorry, as it has been in the last few years. However, um, there's to, a, to an extent there's a shift in this because it's clearly now aligned with the interests of China and Russia, and it's fighting its own. It, it's propelling its um, proxies in the region. Of course, it's con it's continuing to do what it does best, but eventually uh, the, the conflict between Israel and Iran uh, will come. I don't think, I'm not a very, um, I'm not very optimistic that that can be avoided. Honestly, it's my personal opinion. I think that will come. Um, Will it come by itself? Will it come as a, a part of a, a major, um, um, a major uh, war, uh, other situation in the um, 
the world possibly that i i can't really um, i can't really say but honestly uh, i think iran will keep uh, pressing its agenda as it has done uh, multiple times and will continue to do so and eventually the issue of the iranian nuclear program will come to a head and will come to a moment where it will uh, of course um m- m- action will happen on that front by the Israelis because for them it's an existential matter and it's it's the most important uh, matter uh, that has um, we've seen for instance uh, regarding the Israelis a major shift in their position uh, once the the government uh, once uh, the the Iranians um um once the Iranians uh, align themselves with Russia. The moment Russians align themselves with Iran, the Israelis shifted their position. Um, I think, honestly, uh, if I were Iran, I would buy that fight. I think buying a fight with the Israelis is... Um, uh, is... Uh, it won't end well for them, but for Israel is an existential matter, and the uh, Iranian nuclear program for them is absolutely existential, and they'll go to uh, great lengths to uh, to destroy it, to curb it, and I, I would say that's that's coming eventually. I, I think, and Iran, rightly so. I, I, and I think Iran will regret it eventually because it will cost them far more than they think they they than they have estimated. That's my opinion on it. I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't mess with the state of Israel in an existential matter for the state of Israel. Honestly, that's my that's my uh, let's say policy is. Don't mess with the Israelis when it's the, exist- the existence of the state of Israel that is at stake. I would advise against it, but you know, Persians. Nick, please go ahead. Dr. Brown, Dr. Brown, please. I have a completely different topic, so it uh, carry on and, and uh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. We've been off, we've been off topic for quite a bit. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I just a bit more news about the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly vote earlier. Okay, uh, I haven't seen that. Please. So, Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly had a mm-hmm. uh, discussion um, to um, recall or to place on the record the fact that. Uh, Russia's deportation, whatever it's called, of Ukrainian children is a, a component of genocide. And uh, it, it, it happened earlier this afternoon and, and things were, were developing in real time. Um, and um, first of all, the videos are now up. So if anyone wants to see any part of the debate. So uh, Olena Zelenska took part. Um, our good friend from the space, uh, Alexander. Uh, oh, what's his first? 
what's his last name? Olex and uh, uh, bum, 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 bum. not there's an Alexander Mareshko. Who is our Alexander who from the space who was speaking? I'm terribly bad at, at names. Um, I, I went and looked at the votes, the votes are up. Um, there were two. There were two resolutions. I'm not certain why there were two resolutions. Uh, only one person voted against, and I think it was Fat Fingering, the Norwegian deputy. She voted against, and then she voted for, and I clicked on her, and she was solidly in favour of Ukraine yesterday, so I think that was a mistake. Uh, only one member uh, abstained, as in voted formally to abstain. Uh, he was an AFD member from Germany, so no great surprise there. Uh, otherwise, everybody else voted uh, in favour of, of, of the motion. There was also a debate shortly after that about the security situation in Moldova, where mm -hmm. people um, uh, also you know, indicated that they knew pretty well what was going on. So um, I don't think was... Moldova is a big concern, honestly. No, no, but it was it was it was just you know it'll have been put on the agenda. The the Council of Parliamentary Assembly meets every three months, and uh, so it will have been put on the agenda in February. And uh, apart from that, there was very little controversy. Apart from uh, Mr. Uh, Paul Gavin, a Sinn Fein member of the Parliamentary Assembly from Ireland, um, spoke lukewarmly in favor of Ukraine and he did vote in favor of Ukraine uh, and uh, but he, he he took the opportunity because he's a Sinn Féin member uh, while criticizing uh, on the Moldova debate while criticizing um, he criticizes uh, the Brits <laughs> Il, no, while, no no while criticizing Ilan Shaw uh, he, he noted that Ilan Shaw who is on the run from uh, Moldovan justice is currently in Israel and, and refer to it as the apartheid state of Israel. Uh, he was called up by a couple of he was called up by a couple of other members. But that's kind of part of the part of the recital that you have to do if you're if you're in Sinn Fein. It's a sort of it's a semi tanky party. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's the Irish Republican Army, so they'll do that. Yeah, yeah but it, in 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 European terms, it wants to be European, but it also wants to be a bit tanky. So uh, as in, in, in terms of tankiness vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, it's not the worst, but they're just annoying. They're these people who speak in code the whole time because they, yeah, they have the, all this baggage. Uh, but anyway, basically, uh, okay. most, of that, most of that is up. The video on demand is up. I'll, I'll put a link up. Um, and um, it's just you know, one of those days when the Council of Europe uh, places some markers down or bricks in the wall, if I'm allowed to say that, Axel. And... Um, uh, you know, it's all stuff going on the record for the day of reckoning, really. Yeah, and uh, let's let's uh, resume some of the order. One of the things I wanted to say here was the um, the issue that the UN has. Uh, we had a, a Security Council um, meeting of uh, we had the meeting of the UN Security Council presided by Russia that uh, didn't went well. Uh, Israeli Nick, Nick you you've got a hot mic. Nick, you have a hot mic. You have mic, yes. Um, the Israeli um, ambassador uh, gave them a dress down and left the room. The Ecuadorian, Ecuador, the ambassador of Ecuador, 
made a tremendous, tremendous intervention. And I consider that, and that's the, the most relevant thing, I consider that very important because we all see this idea of the global south, the global south, the global south. Well, guess what? Ecuador is a bit south. Um, and Ecuador, being a Latin American country, being a country that was uh, um, firmly aligned in some instances with Russian intelligence in the days of Assange and whatnot, they have now made a tremendous stride and they have placed themselves in a different political corner uh, from uh, Russia and China, and that's good to see. Uh, we also saw the Colombians, uh, uh, not in the Security Council, but recently doing the same. Uh, so uh, our friends in Latin America, uh, that we have still have some so many friends in Latin America that want to be uh, part of the 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 enlarged West. So that's good to see. But I, I appreciate it. Go see it online. I appreciated the, the, the speech by the Ecuadorian, uh, the ambassador of Ecuador, uh, very much. It was a, a great speech from people that uh, know what they're saying, that come from a southern country, because honestly, that idea of the global south, I'm not a big fan of it. I'm not a big fan of it. I'm not. I think no surprise there. It's a bad term. No, it's it's a bad term, and you're um, compounding things in the same. Let's say you're putting in the same jar things that are not do not mix. Nigeria does not mix with Colombia because they have completely different regional realities. They have completely different uh, um, uh, alignments. They have completely different interests, and you cannot call Nigeria and Colombia. This is two examples by random. The global south, because the Colombians are firmly aligned with the West, the Nigerians are firmly aligned with Nigeria, and they'll do all kinds of deals. But it's the nature of their of their uh, region in their size. It, but these two things, ha these two countries have massively different uh, problems and sets of problems and massively different interests. So compounding all this as the global south, I think it's a very unfortunate term. I think we have a question by the G-Man. Go ahead, please, G-Man. Uh, evening. I've just got to comment on uh, Nick's news about the uh, Council of Europe debate. I'm just very pleased that the Sinn Féin are our friendly Republicans uh, that are now uh, politicians and uh, rejected the Armalite in favour of the ballot box um, are not full tanky um, as Mick Wallace and his, as we made Claire daily um, are. Uh, so we can be, I suppose, we should be thankful for small mercies. You know, and they can say Chucky Arla all they want and uh, just talk away in the European Parliament. It's, it's fine. We can probably ignore what they say most of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mick Wallace is a different ball game because that's a whole different thing, and that's a Russian asset to an extent. Yeah. And uh, Sinn Fein is just Sinn Fein being Sinn Fein. I mean, it's it's 
it's fine <laughs> to an extent. It's fine. It's Sinn Féin being Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, not Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin. Fortunately, it could also be uh, in government very soon, both parts of Ireland. But anyway. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, 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 and I think they'll play. They have played, and they'll continue to play a relevant role in uh, Irish overall, overall Irish politics. So, um, to the great, so it's not. It's it's a kind of a, as Nick was saying, it's a pseudo, pseudo tanky party, but it's mostly Sinn Fein, and it's it it has it has some allegiances from back in the day. With the Palestinians and whatnot from back back when, and uh, some of these guys can forget back when Muhammad Gaddafi trained everyone in the deserts of Libya to fight revolutionary wars. But that's back in the day, Mr. Gaddafi. Well, he that didn't that didn't end well. Um, so that's that's that. Another thing, and as we approach here the final stretch of this. And uh, being that Alex wants Axel wants to get back on track, the best we can, <laughs> the best we can, best we can. I would say that um, Berlin just expelled. Berlin has been very interesting this week because uh, Germany just expelled a bunch of Russian diplomats out of nowhere. Just a bunch of Russian intelligence officers. They just expelled them. 30, I think, right? Am I correct, Axel? Yeah, and that is just those with diplomatic passports. Also, additional staff of the embassy has been curated, let's put it this way. Yes, yes. I think the overall thing is 17 diplomats with official passports and the rest was staff. That was... The Russians had to fly a plane in to take them. So uh, Germany got... uh, The BFP got very serious and decided to uh, uh, hammer it down. And also, kudos to Germany. Good operation in Sudan. Solid. No holds barred. Uh, decided on a dime. Good to see Mr. Pistorius and Annalena Barbok leading the way. That's, that was a good thing. So, a uh, shout out to the Germans. Actually, a shout out to the Germans, the Italians, the Spanish, the French, the Americans, but I'm European, so a shout out to those because good display of quick reaction and um, solid operations in Sudan. Duno, how did they get there into Sudanese airspace? What happened along the way? Uh, They got there from Djibouti. Yeah, but it, they got to Djibouti um, uh, before. There was mm-hmm. a C-130 there. And the, the, the Germans, uh, as well as a couple of others who were flown in, had nice, friendly Eurofighter escorts across the Mediterranean. Yes. Yes. And everything so was just... ready if need, needs, if needs arises uh, to, to bring down some uh, closer support. It, it, the Spanish uh, used the QRF based in Ethiopia too. They landed the the, the A400. They had the ground force in Ethiopia ready to run if things got south. If things went south, so that, that's an interesting point. We do have, and many people always forget this. 
they project that Chinese are strong, the Russians are strong, Wanger, oh, sorry, Wagner, but Wanger, um, we're not allowed to call them wankers here, sorry, on the program, you know, you know despite the... But this is a family show, we just it's discussed a, it's war a family and show, killing so, Russians. Exactly, yeah, exactly, that's why we call them wankers here. Um, but having said this, it is actually not even a secret, but we all, European nations, NATO, the Americans, Canadians, we all have not just a diplomatic, not just a humanitarian, not just a development aid perspective and presence in all these countries. And we also have significant force projection, presence, capability. We are there. Yes, we yes. don't talk as much about it, but the fear, which is constantly being, you know, brought to bear in the in the media it makes me sick and we we, yes. we can easily do this the german air force ran the dang airport in khartoum for 16 hours because and the, spanish, the spanish land and the spanish landed uh, in wadi saina an airbase and exactly they, they ran it there uh, as long as they wanted and they used uh, a british uh, a parachuting brigade and special operations units and they basically landed there for A400s evacuated about 300 400 people um and came home safe and sound capability commitment quality and fast decision fast decision i i particularly like the way that we enabled uh the moment uh it was decided it was a go Everyone basically stepped in and just delivered. That's uh, an impressive display of of force projection. And Sudan isn't exactly around the corner, so it's um, an impressive display. That if I were Wagner, I'd be very concerned. But they won't be until it's too late. But anyway, good for them. Uh, I think Lexer has a question. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, well, a little different. I just want to um, kind of point out something to people because on this space, um, it's about that uh, U.S. congressional resolution that's making its way through the process. And um, it's quite interesting in the space, especially the late nor late evening North American side has been doing a lot of work trying to get people to... Uh, to call up their representatives and get them to sponsor this resolution in both sides of the Congress. But I just noticed today an unexpected um, uh, impact of this whole thing, of this resolution, is that Solovyov and his gang of uh, ghouls, to, I had no idea how much this the discomfiture that the existence of this resolution has created in this guy's breast and the rest of them nodding sagely. They can't get a word in sledgewise, but this, he has grasped the three salient points of Ukraine's position for settlement of the conflict. The 1991 borders. I have never seen anybody in Russia talk about the 1991 borders and the reparations and, uh, yeah, well, all the troops get out. So he is talking about this. He's a one. We've been talking about this here from the very beginning, but I agree with you. You've been talking about what? The impact the of. 
No, yeah, we yeah. Always no, talk I'm about saying about the 1991 borders. Yeah, We've even but when the what... Russian trolls came in March last year, highlighted to them, this is where it's going to be at. But I agree with you. That's right. What I'm saying is just we had no way to gain traction in getting this word out to anybody in the Russian space. And this guy, single-handedly, who knows, you know, what his audience is at now, but he and his gang are talking about this incessantly. He's been ranting about the borders to which he's a one-trick pony, always has been. So his rant on different channels is uh, where he gets himself invited or runs it himself, is to show a map of all the borders to which America would have to return if we went back to the 17th or other centuries. I mean, if we went back to those centuries, Russia might be in a funny space too. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the capacity, anyway, the effect that the, just the, the bruting of this resolution, the fact that it's been talked about in some press has stunned these guys and they're talking about this. I don't think Russian people had any idea what exactly the issue is from Ukraine's point of view. And he's made it a legitimate issue. So I think that that aspect of the resolution, I mean, I saw it as a good way to buoy up, to put some posts behind the various wavering elements in this coalition of ours. But uh, I had not foreseen anything like this sort of uh, early and often impact in the Russian media space. I don't know what others think of it, but it's just been striking me all day long as I see these things coming in. What do you think? Another, another, another interesting aspect of information warfare, isn't it? Sorry, I didn't understand. You're not that interested another, in... Uh, no, no, no. It's another interesting yeah. display of information warfare. Oh, absolutely, and so intriguing. And I myself would never have uh, foreseen that uh, impact, that particular yes, but, consequence. But, uh, you, you're creating the idea that the 1991 borders are the outcome. Yeah. So that's in the eve, again, in the eve of a counteroffensive. Yep. In the run-up to a counteroffensive. So perhaps... Um, there's a certain it, it's um, there's a certain continuity to all these efforts and we have uh, one of the things I want to talk about actually goes into this we have an excellent piece by Yulia Yoffe um, and she uh, I think it's Pluck News and I think uh, she traveled to Rammstein with General Milley the command, the chief, uh, the commander of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he actually said something very interesting, very very interesting. That that whole uh, reporting is is interesting, and there's something uh, very interesting in there, which is uh, expectation management. Uh, there's a sense of managing expectation from the public. But she also describes there's the jitters in the Rammstein uh, uh, coalition because everyone knows this is about to go, about to go down, about to go down. And everyone has like, well, it's a, as anything, the jitters of how are you going to, how is this going to, to evolve and then uh, where we'll be uh, in the next few months. And I think that's tangible from that piece. I recommend everyone go see it. 
it's a very interesting and uh, in uh, well written piece. It provides a, an interesting account, and it provides um, more than the actual information. It provides the atmosphere of. Um, I was reading it, and I was from my personal experience as um, in military operations. I was uh, kind of feeling it. It it conveys well the jitters that everyone feels when it's about to go down, and uh, everyone is in expectation. So it's I highly recommend it. It's uh, by Yulia Yoffe. It's an excellent piece. If you can share it in the Nasdaq, so mm. please do. Oh, that's it's, great. It's very very interesting. More than anything else, in my it, it, this is my perspective as a reader. Uh, for me, it conveyed at the atmosphere uh, in the Allies, the coalition, in the Ukrainians, more than exactly the policy and what's been given or what's not been given, or what Milly said himself. In a, to an extent, Milly did some expectation management that's perfectly fine uh, because that's his job to manage expectations, but. The atmosphere it conveyed from Rammstein meeting, it was absolutely very, very, very interesting. Um, and yeah, uh, Axel, uh, one thing I'll say before we wrap it up, and I've shared here in the nest, um, I'd like to uh, share here a, a shout out to a Portuguese CNN commentator called Elena. She's a friend. Uh, and she has been one of the strongest pro-Ukraine voices in the country. I'll eventually uh, ask her to come around for a, a show. Um, it is high time. It is yeah, high time. It's high high time. And she <laughs> she received no, but she received today something that uh, is is um, uh, is very interesting. She received a video from uh, Ukrainian soft in Bakhmut uh, thanking her for speaking the truth in television and they send her uh, um, uh, also a signed flag and, uh, the tweet is in the nest you people go follow her uh, she's worth a read she tweets mostly in Portuguese but she tweets also in English sometimes I'll eventually uh, convince her to do a, a, a show with me here uh, but uh, it's uh, something that uh, it's it's very touching from them to snipers telling her uh, that she has been a voice of truth for Ukraine and they've sent uh, a signed flag. So a shout out to, to Elena Govaya, uh, who's been a very, very staunch pro-Ukraine defense. Her uh, tweet uh, is in my tweet in the nest. So you people go follow her. Uh, it's worth real. And it's another uh, important pro-Ukrainian voice uh, that uh, has a shout out from the Ukrainians themselves fighting in Bakhmut. So I think we have time for one final question. So Skykiss, please go ahead. And with this, I will wrap. Thank you. I, mostly, I wanted to thank you for these links and, and these uh, new good resources to follow. Um, I'm always looking for you know, extremely um, well put language and and reporting and good, well-formed opinions. 
So, and I wanted to thank you again for, I, I was late, but I'm glad to be here. And thank you very much for coming to speak with us. And I want to give a shout out to Lexicon because I didn't know that about, you know, something important getting under this man's skin. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's just so abhorrent. And thank you so much. And thank you, Axel, for, for getting these uh, links up into the nest and for um, co-hosting and your excellent interviews. That's thank you. Uh, thank you. And I recommend both Elena, of course, but I also recommend highly, highly, highly Phillips O'Brien, which is a, a very, which is an excellent, excellent analyst who's been to Ukraine and who has done tremendous work. And I highly, highly recommend Philip O'Brien. Uh, he's, he, he's been here. He's, no. come, he's come to speak with us, right? Right, Axel? Yes. It, it's been, been a while. He didn't tell me that. didn't tell me that. No, no, no. It's not a problem. Uh, Philip's, Philip's had, to, had um, say, a family uh, thing to attend to uh, later in autumn, as you may know. And uh, therefore, he yes. couldn't... Uh, and therefore, he couldn't uh, join as much as he liked. But uh, we shall look forward to having him back. And, I'll, I'll, uh, invite he mentioned... him. I'll invite him. Give it, give him a ding dong. I, I sent him a message, I think, last week, and uh, he was busy traveling, as I understand. No, yes, he was in Ukraine. But well, uh, we should I'll... have him back. I'll, I'll talk to him. I'll bring him back. <laughs> okay. So, everyone, thank you so much, Echo, uh, David. Thank you. Uh, great being here and next week at this 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock run, we'll see <laughs> depending on my other things, but um, we'll be here for another uh, edition of Undisclosed Location. Everyone, thank you so much for the questions and the time. Much and appreciated. That's it. And Always um, wonderful to have you, Nuno. I'm not forgetting bets, Axel. Just <laughs> a soft reminder, you know, yeah, yeah, just 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 saying, just saying. Yeah, yeah, we have it. We have it. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Ciao, no, no. Bye bye bye. Ciao ciao. Bye bye bye. All righty, that's a wrap. And with this, I can uh, recommend everybody to have a little look. See who is on the panel of and Shaggy and Skankers and Laughing Tommy, G Men and and the Lexicon requesting because we do have Alan, our very own Braumeister. Alan Brewer back. Hey, Axel. Hey, David. Great segment with Nuno, as always. Oh, gee, man. You shouldn't have. David, go get Are we going to sack him? Yes, get exactly. I'm going to blow it up now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Shaggy, please. <laughs> right, can you give me 10 seconds? I'm just pulling over. It was something that Nuno said earlier on. There we go. Uh, it was something Nuno said earlier on about ideas. It reminds me of my favorite film or something. Um, I just posted on my thread, actually. Um, so, my favorite film is V for Vendetta. And there's a line in there where uh, v says, beneath this mask, there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask, there is an idea. 
Mr. Greedy. And ideas are bulletproof. And that kind of goes to the heart of info wars in, in a way, I think. Um, if you plant an idea and the idea is strong enough uh, and the idea gets inside someone's head, um, then, then it can change a lot. It can, it can instill belief. It can instill fear. It can instill doubt. It can instill a lot of things. Uh, it, it's all done uh, within the person who has taken on board that idea. Um, so, yeah, in, a, in, lo in lots of things, um, an idea is one of the most powerful things you can uh, you can use, you can have, uh, and you can deploy in, in a way. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I think uh, from small acorns, mighty oaks grow, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it is like.